everyone. Thank you for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is week one of Jules Verne, and we've got Castle of the Carpathians. Uh, you know, it may have inspired the topography for Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, it very likely could have, and you know, not a lot of stuff happened in Transylvania and literature, and you know, I'm pretty sure Bram Stoker probably read this. But hey, uh, how about the fact that we're doing Jules Verne all month long? And after that, we're gonna be doing the uh, Underground City Mysterious Island, uh, that one about the moon and the one about the Antarctic of Jules Verne this month. We're probably gonna have some experts on the show talking about Jules Verne and talking about Jules Verne's influence on literature and fiction and science fiction for sure. And yeah, yeah, it's gonna be a cool, fun time. And you know what you should do? If you like the show, you should let us know by going to facebook.com, look for Black Clock Audio Tales or People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos if that's the one you like better. And let us know that you like the show. Review us, rate us, whatever. Let people know that we're out there. Share us. Tell people about it. Be like, you know what? The announcer guy kind of sucks, but if you skip ahead, probably about like, I don't know, I'm guessing about three minutes, you'll get to the story. You can start listening to it. And sometimes he pipes in for commercials, but hey, you know what? It's free. So you know what? Let people know it's free and that I'm not going to put up a paywall. And that... People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, is a weekly podcast, but we put out enough every week that you've got stuff all week long. I ran out of stuff all week long, and then I remembered, oh shoot, I've got that post stuff that I edited last week that's coming up today, and then I was like, awesome. And then I remembered I also had some unspooled to listen to, but I'll talk about that. No, no I won't. I don't talk about other podcasts on my podcast. Anyway, so thank you for listening to this podcast. And also, I do talk about other podcasts. You can check out um, Dave's Corner of the Universe bits and segments that we do here. Hopefully, sooner than later, we'll have Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And we've got Black Clock Audio Tales, which you're listening to right now. We do special segments from time to time with folks like Ken Hyde or Andrew Migliori or Andrew Grace or... um, Let's see, sometimes we get David Heath to talk about stuff, and sometimes we're lucky enough to get uh, Scott Glancy. We've had Rossi Lockhart from Word Horde, and we've even had Rodney Anonymous from the Dead Milkman on the show. So check us out, pgttcm.com, for all the back episodes. Here we go. Chapter 7 How can we describe the anxiety to which the village of Worst had been prey since the departure of the young forester and Dr. Patek? and it had constantly increased as the hours elapsed, and seems interminable. Master Colts, the innkeeper Jonas, Magister Hermit, and a few others had remained all the time on the terrace, each of them keeping a constant watch in the distant castle to see if any wreath of smoke appeared over the dungeon. No smoke showed itself, as was ascertained by means of the telescope, which was incessantly brought to bear in that direction. Assuredly, the two florins sunk in the acquisition of that instrument had been well invested. Never had the Bureau, although so much interested in the matter, betrayed the slightest regret as so opportune an expenditure. At half-past twelve, when the shepherd Frick returned from the pasture, he was eagerly interrogated. Was there anything new? Anything extraordinary? Anything supernatural? Frick replied that he had just come along the valley of the Wallachian Sill without seeing anything suspicious. After dinner, about two o'clock, the people went back to their post of observation. 
No one dreamt of remaining at home, and no one would certainly have dreamt of setting foot within the grand saloon of the King Matthias, where comminatory voices had made themselves heard. That walls have ears is all very well, it is a popular proverb, but a mouth? And so the worthy innkeeper might well fear that his inn had been put into quarantine, and consequently his anxiety was extreme. Would he have to shut up shop and drink his own stock for want of customers? And with a view of restoring confidence among the people of Worst, he had undertaken a lengthy search throughout the King Matthias. He had searched the rooms, under the beds, explored the cupboards and the sideboard, and every corner of the large saloon, the cellar, and the storeroom, from which any ill-disposed practical joker might have worked the mystification. Nothing could he find, not even along the side of the house overlooking the naiad. The windows were too high for it to be possible for anyone to climb to them along a perpendicular wall, the foundation of which went sheer down into the impetuous torrent. It mattered not. Fear does not reason, and considerable time would doubtless elapse before Jonas's habitual guests would return to their confidence in his inn, his schnapps, and his rakia. Considerable time? That is a mistake, and, as we shall see, this gloomy prognostic was never realized. In fact, a few days later, in a quite unexpected way, the village notables were to resume their daily conferences, varied with refreshments, in the saloon of the King Matthias. But we must first return to the young forester and his companion, Dr. Patak. It will be remembered that when he left Worst, Nick Deck had promised the disconsolate Miriota that he would make his visit to the castle of the Carpathians as brief as possible. If no harm happened to him, if the threats fulmigated against him were not realized, he expected to get back early in the evening. He was therefore waited for, and with what impatience. Neither the girl, nor her father, nor the schoolmaster could foresee that the difficulties of the road would prevent the forester from reaching the crest of the Orgal Plateau before nightfall. And, in consequence, the anxiety, which had been intense during the day, exceeded all bounds when eight o'clock struck in the Vulcan clock, which could be heard distinctly at worst. What could have happened to prevent both Nick and the doctor from returning after a day's absence? Nobody thought of going home before they came back. Every minute they were seen in imagination coming round some turning in the road or along some gap in the hills. Master Colts and his daughter had gone to the end of the road, where the shepherd had been placed on the lookout. Many times they thought they saw somebody in the distance through the clearings among the trees, a pure illusion. The hillside was deserted, as usual, for it was not often that a frontier folk ventured there at night. And it was Thursday evening, the Thursday of evil spirits, and on that day the Transylvanian never willingly stirs abroad after sundown. It seemed that Nick Deck must have been mad to have chosen such a day for his visit to the castle. The truth being that the young forester had not given it a thought, and indeed had no one else in the village. But Miriota was thinking a good deal about it now, and what terrible imaginings occurred to her. In imagination, she had followed her lover hour by hour, through the thick forest of the Plaza, as he made his way up to the Orgal Plateau. And now that night had come, she seemed to see him within the wall, endeavoring to escape from the spirits which haunted the castle of the Carpathians. He had to become the sport of their malevolence. He was the victim devoted to their vengeance. He was imprisoned in the depths of some subterranean jail. Dead, perhaps. Poor girl what she would not have given to throw herself on his track. And if she could not do that, at least she could wait all night in this place. But her father insisted on her going home, and leaving the shepherd on the watch, returned with her to his house. As soon as she was in her little room, Miriota abandoned herself to tears. She loved him with all her heart, this brave Nick, and with a love all the more grateful owing to the young forester not having sought her under the conditions on which marriages are typically arranged in these Transylvanian countries. Every year, at the Feast of St. Peter, there opens the Fair of the Betrothed. On that day, all the marriageable girls of the district are assembled. They come in their best carriages, drawn by their best horses. They bring with them their dowry, 
that is to say, the clothes that they have spun and sewn and embroidered with their hands, and these are all packed in gaudily colored boxes, their relatives and women friends and neighbors accompanying them. And then the young men arrived, dressed in their best clothes and gilt with silken sashes. Proudly they strut through the fair, they choose the girl they take a fancy to, they give her a ring and a handkerchief in token of betrothal, and the marriages take place at the close of the fair. But it was not in one of these marriage fairs that Nick Deck had met Miriota. Their acquaintanceship had not come about by chance. They had known each other from childhood. They had loved as soon as they were old enough to love. The young forester had not had to seek her out at a sale. But why was Nick Deck of so resolute a character? Why was he so obstinate in keeping an imprudent promise? And yet he loved her, although she had not enough influence over him to stop his going to this wretched castle. What a night the sorrowful Miriota had amid her terrors and her tears. She could not sleep. Stooping at her window, looking out on the rising road, she seemed to hear a voice that whispered, Nicholas Deck has defied the warning. Miriota has no longer a lover. But that was but a mistake of her troubled senses. No voice came across the silence of the night. The phenomenon of the saloon of the King Matthias was not reproduced in the house of Master Colts. At dawn the next morning, the population of Worst were astir. From the terrace to the rise of the hill, some went one way, some another along the main road. Some asking for news, some giving it. They said that Frick the shepherd had gone off about a quarter of a mile from the village, not to enter the forest, but to skirt it, and that he had some reason for doing so. The people were waiting for him, and in order to communicate more promptly with him, Master Colts, Miriota, and Jonas went to the end of the village. Half an hour afterwards, Frick was observed a few hundred yards away, up the rising road. As he did not appear to be in a hurry, good news was not expected. Well, Frick, said Master Colts as soon as the shepherd came up, what have you discovered? I have seen nothing and discovered nothing, said Frick. Nothing, murmured the girl, whose eyes filled with tears. At daybreak, continued the shepherd, I saw two men about half a mile away. At first I thought it was Nick Deck, accompanied by the doctor, but it was not. Do you know who the men were? asked Jonas. Two travelers who had crossed the frontier in the morning. You spoke to them? Yes. Were they coming towards the village? No, they were going towards Retiet, bound for the summit. Two tourists? They looked like it, Master Colts. And as they crossed the Vulcan during the night, they saw nothing near the castle? No, for they were then on the other side of the frontier, replied Frick. Have you no news of Nick Deck? None. There was a sigh from poor Miriota. Besides, said Frick, you can have a talk to these travelers in a day or two, for they are thinking of staying at worst, before setting out for Kolsvar. Provided someone does not speak evil of my inn, thought Jonas, they would never care to stay there. For the last thirty-six hours, the excellent landlord had been possessed by this fear that no traveler dare henceforth eat and sleep at the King Matthias. In short, these questions and answers between the shepherd and his master had in no way cleared matters up, and as neither the young forester nor Dr. Patek had reappeared by eight o'clock in the morning, could it be reasonably hoped that they would ever reappear, the castle of the Carpathians was not to be approached with impunity. Crushed by the emotions of that sleepless night, Miriota could bear up no longer. She almost fainted away and hardly had strength to walk. Her father took her home. There, her tears were doubled. She called Nick in a heart-rending voice. She would have gone out to find him, and all pitied her in fear that she was going to have a serious illness. However, it was necessary and urgent to do something. Someone ought to go to the help of the forester and the doctor without losing a moment. That he would have to run into danger in exposing himself to the attack of the beings, human or otherwise, who occupied the castle mattered little. The important thing was to know what had become of Nick and the doctor. This duty fell not only to their friends, but to every inhabitant of the village. The bravest could not refuse to cross the place of forests and ascend to the castle of the Carpathians. 
That was decided after many discussions. The bravest were found to consist of three. These were Master Colts, the Shepherd Frick, and the Innkeeper Jonas. Not one more. As for Magister Hermit, he was suddenly seized with gout in the leg, and had to stretch himself out on two chairs while he taught in his school. About nine o'clock, Master Colts and his companions, well armed in case of eventualities, took the road to the Vulcan. At the very turning where Nick Deck had left it, they left it to plunge into the woods. In fact, they said to themselves, not without reason, that if the young forester and the doctor were on their way back to the village, this was the road by which they would come, and it would be easy to get on their track once the three were through the outer line of trees. We will leave them to relate what happened at worst as soon as they were out of sight. If it had appeared indispensable that volunteers should go off to the rescue of Nick Deck and Patak, it was considered to be unreasonably imprudent now that they were gone. It would be a fine conclusion that the first catastrophe were to be doubled by the second. That the forester and the doctor had been the victims of their attempt, no one doubted. And what was the use of Master Colts and Frick and Jonas exposing themselves to another disaster? They would indeed be getting on when the girl had to weep for her father, as she had to weep for her betrothed. When the friends of the shepherd and the innkeeper had to reproach themselves with their loss. The grief became general at worst, and there was no sign that it would soon end. Even supposing that no harm happened to them, the return of Master Colts and his two companions could not be reckoned upon before night had fallen on the height of the place. What, then, was the surprise when they were sighted about two o'clock in the afternoon some distance along the road? With what eagerness did Miriota, who was at once told of their approach, run to meet them? There were not three, there were four, and the fourth appeared to be in the shape of the doctor. Nick, by poor Nick, exclaimed the girl, Nick is not there. Yes, Nick Deck was there, stretched on a litter of boughs which Jonas and the shepherd bore with difficulty. Mariota rushed toward her betrothed. She stooped over him. She clasped him in her arms. He is dead, she exclaimed. He is dead. No, he is not dead, replied Dr. Batak. But he deserves to be, and so do I. The truth is, the forester was unconscious. His limbs were stiff, his face bloodless, his respiration hardly moved his chest. As for the doctor, his face was not as colorless as the companions, owing to the walk having restored his usual brick-red tint. Miriota's voice, so tender, so heart-rending, could not awaken Nick Deck from the torpor in which he was plunged. When he had been brought into the village and laid in the room in Mester Colts's house, he had not uttered a word. A few moments afterwards, however, his eyes opened, and when he saw the girl stooping over him, a smile played on his lips. But when he tried to raise himself, he could not. A part of his body was paralyzed, as if he had been struck with hemiplegia. At the same time, wishing to comfort Miriota, he said to her in a very feeble voice, it is true, it will be nothing, it will be nothing. Nick, my poor Nick, said the girl. A little over fatigue, dear Miriota, and a little excitement. It will be over soon, with your nursing. But the patient required calm and repose, and so Master Colts went away, leaving Miriota near the young forester, who could not have wished for a more attentive nurse and soon fell asleep. Meanwhile, the innkeeper Jonas related to a numerous audience, and in a loud voice so as to be heard by all, what had happened after their departure. Master Colts, the shepherd and himself, after finding the footpath cut by Nick Deck and the doctor, had gone on toward the castle of the Carpathians. For two hours they made their way up to the Plaza Slopes, and the edge of the forest was not more than a half mile off when two men appeared. These were the doctor and the forester, one quite helpless in the legs, the other just about to fall at the foot of a tree owing to exhaustion. To run to the doctor, to interrogate him, but without being able to obtain a single word, for he was too stupefied to reply. To make a litter with the branches, to lay Nick Deck on it, to put Patak on his feet, did not take very long. Then Master Colts and the shepherd, 
who relieved Jonas from time to time, resumed the road to worst. As to saying why Nick Deck was in such a state, and if he had entered the ruins of the castle, the innkeeper knew no more than Master Colts or the shepherd Frick, and the doctor had not yet sufficiently recovered his spirits to satisfy their curiosity. But if Patak had not yet spoken, it was necessary for him to speak now. He was in safety in the village, surrounded by his friends and in the midst of his patients. He had nothing to fear from the things at the castle, and even if they had wrung from him an oath to be silent, to say nothing of what he had seen in the castle of the Carpathians, the public interest required that he should ignore that oath. Compose yourself, doctor, said Master Colts, and try to remember. You wish me to speak? In the name of the inhabitants of Worst, and for the sake of the safety of the village, I order you to do so. A large glass of Rakiao, brought in by Jonas, had the effect of restoring to the doctor the use of his tongue, and in broken sentences he expressed himself in these terms. We went off, both of us, Nick and I. Fools, fools. It took nearly all day to get through those wretched forests. We did not get up to the castle before it was getting dark. I still tremble at it. I will tremble at it all my life. Nick wanted to go in. Yes, he wanted to spend the night in the dungeon as much as to say to sleep in the bedroom of Beelzebub. Dr. Patak said these things in a voice so cavernous that all who heard him shuddered. I did not consent, he continued. No, I did not consent. And what would have happened if I had yielded to Nick Deck's desires? My hair stands on end to think of it. And if the doctor's hair did not stand on end, it was because his hand watered mechanically over his paw. Nick accordingly resigned himself to camping on the Orga Plateau. What a night. My friends, what a night. Try to rest when the spirits will not let you sleep an hour. No, not even one hour. Suddenly, fiery monsters appeared in the clouds. Regular Balorus. They hurled themselves onto the plateau to devour us. Every look was turned towards the sky to make sure that a few specters were not there in full gallop. And a few moments after, continued the doctor, the chapel bell began to clang. Every ear was stretched toward the horizon, and more than one of the crowd believed they could hear the distant ringing in the direction of the castle. So much had the doctor's recital impressed his audience. Suddenly, he went on, fearful bellowings filled the air, or rather the roaring of wild beasts. Then a bright light darted from the windows of the dungeon. An infernal flame illuminated all the plateau up to the fir forest. Nick Deck and I looked at one another. Ah, the terrible vision! We were like two corpses, two corpses which the lurid light set making horrible grimaces at each other. And to look at Dr. Patak, with his convulsed face and his wild eyes, there really would have been some excuse for asking if he had not returned from that other world, whither he had already sent so many of his kind. He had to be left to recover his breath, for he was incapable of continuing his story. This cost Jonas a second glass of Rakiao, which appeared to bring back to the doctor some portion of the senses which the other spirits had made him lose. What happened to poor Nick Deck? asked Master Colt. And, not without reason, the Bureau attached extreme importance to the doctor's reply, for it was the young forester who had been personally threatened by the voice of the spirits in the saloon of the King Matthias. As far as I remember, continued the doctor, the daylight returned. I besought Nick Deck to abandon his projects. But you know him. He could not be more obstinate if he would. He went down into the ditch, and I was forced to follow him, for he dragged me along with him. Besides, I really do not know what I did. Nick went on up to the gate. He caught hold of the chain of the drawbridge, with which he pulled himself up the wall. At this moment, the sense of our position occurred. There was still time to stop him, that rash, I say more, that sacrilegious young man. For the last time, I ordered him to come down, to come back to the road to worst. No, he shouted to me. I would have run away. Yes, my friends, I confess it. I would have fled, and there is not one of you who would not have had the same thought in my place. But it was in vain I tried to move from the ground. My feet were nailed, screwed, rooted. 
I tried to free them. It was impossible. I tried to struggle. It was useless. And Dr. Patak imitated the desperate movements of a man held by the legs, as a fox is held in a trap. Then, resuming his story, he said, At this moment there was a cry, and such a cry. It was Nick Deck who uttered it. His hands had let go the chain, and he fell to the bottom of the ditch as if he had been struck by an invisible hand. The doctor, it is clear, had told what had happened, and his imagination had added nothing, excited though it might be. Just as he had described them, so had the prodigies appeared of which the Orgal Plateau had been the scene during the preceding night. What had happened after Nick Deck's fall was as follows. The forester had fainted, and Dr. Patak was incapable of helping him, for his boots were stuck to the ground, and he could not get his swollen feet out of them. Suddenly, the invisible force that detained him vanished. His legs were free. He rushed toward his companion, and what must be considered a noble act of courage, he bathed Nick Deck's face with his handkerchief, which he dipped in the water of the stream. The forester recovered consciousness, but his left arm and part of his body were helpless after the frightful shock he had had. However, with the doctor's aid, he managed to get up and climb the slope of the counterscarp and regain the plateau. Then he set out for the village. After an hour's progress, the pain in his arm and side became so violent that he had to stop, and it was just as the doctor was about to start off alone in search of help from worst that Master Colts and Jonas and Frick arrived most opportunely. The doctor carefully avoided saying that the young forester had been seriously hurt, although he was generally very positive when consulted on medical matters. When the ailment is a natural ailment, he said in a dogmatic tone, it is serious. But when we have to deal with the supernatural ailment sent by the chort, it is only the chort who can cure it. In default of a diagnosis, it cannot be said that this prognosis was reassuring for Nick Deck. There have, however, been many physicians since Hippocrates and Galen who have made mistakes, and these have been far better men than Dr. Patak. The young forester was a healthy lad. With his vigorous constitution, there was reason to hope that without any diabolic intervention, he would recover, on condition that he was not too careful to accept the advice of the old quarantine officer. End of chapter 7 Such had been this lamentable history. For a month, Franz de Telec's life was in danger. He recognized nobody, not even his man Rotsko. In the height of his fever, but one name escaped his lips, which were ready to part with their last breath. It was that of Lastilla. The young Count did not die. The skill of the doctors, the incessant care of Rotsko, together with his own youth and constitution, saved Franz de Telec. His reason emerged uninjured from this terrible struggle. But when memory returned to him, when he recalled the final tragic scene in Orlando, in which the soul of the artist had left her, Stilla, my Stilla, he cried, stretching out his hands as if he were applauding. As soon as his master could leave his bed, Rotsko persuaded him to leave this accursed town and allow himself to be carried home to the castle of Krajoa. But before he left Naples, the young Count wished to go and pray over the grave of the dead and bid her a last and eternal farewell. Rotsko accompanied him to Campo Santo Nuevo, there, Franz threw himself on the cruel ground. He would have torn it up with his fingernails to bury himself by her side. Rothsko, at last, managed to get him away from the grave, where he had left all his life and all his happiness. A few days afterwards, Franz de Telec had returned to Krajoa, to his old family estate. There he lived for four years in absolute retirement, never leaving the castle. Neither time nor distance could alleviate his grief. He would have forgotten, but it was impossible. The remembrance of Lestilla, vivid as on the first day, was bound up with his life, and the wound would close only with his death. At the time our story begins, the young Count had left the castle for some weeks. 
What long and pressing arguments Roscoe had had to prevail on his master to abandon the solitude in which he was wasting away. Consolation might be impossible, but an attempt at distraction might at least be made. A plan of a tour was then decided on, which consisted in first visiting the Transylvanian provinces. Later, Roscoe hoped that the young Count would agree to resume the European journey, which had been interrupted by the sad events at Naples. Franz de Telec had set out for only a short exploration. He and Roscoe had crossed the Wallachian plains up to the imposing mass of the Carpathians. They had been among the Vulcan defiles, and after an ascent of Retizat and an excursion across the valley of the Maros, they had come for a rest to the village of Worst, to the King Matthias Inn. We know the state of affairs when Franz de Telec arrived, and how he had been informed of the incomprehensible occurrences of which the castle had been the scene. We also know how he had ascertained that the castle belonged to Baron Rodolphe de Gortz. The effect produced by his name was too apparent for Master Colts and the other notables not to notice it, and Rotzko would have cheerfully sent to the devil this Master Colts, who had so inopportunely uttered it and his stupid stories. Why should some ill chance have brought Franz de Telec to this very village of Worst, in the neighborhood of the castle of the Carpathians? The young count had become silent. This look, wandering from one to the other, only too clearly indicated the deep trouble of his mind, which he was seeking in vain to calm. Master Colts and his friends understood that some mysterious tie must exist between the Count de Telec and the Baron de Gortz. But, inquisitive as they were, they maintained a seemly reserve and did not seek to take an advantage. Later on, they would see what they can do. A few minutes afterwards, everyone had left the King Matthias, much perplexed at this extraordinary chain of adventures, which foreboded no good to the village. And now that the young Count knew to whom the castle of the Carpathians belonged, would he keep his promise? If he went to Carlsberg, would he report the matter to the authorities and demand their intervention? That was what the Bureau, the schoolmaster, Dr. Patak, and others were asking. If he did not do so, Master Colts had resolved to do so. The police had been informed of what had occurred. They would visit the castle. They would see if it were haunted by spirits or inhabited by criminals, for the village could remain no longer under such a state of affairs. This would, it is true, be quite useless in the opinion of most of the inhabitants. To attack the spirits, the swords of the gendarmes would be broken like glass, and their guns would misfire each time. Franz de Telec, left alone in the large room of the King Matthias, abandoned himself to the recollections which the name of Baron de Gortz had so unhappily evoked. After remaining in an armchair for an hour, as if he were quite exhausted, he rose, left the saloon, and went out to the end of the terrace and looked away in the distance. On the place a ridge, bounded by the Orgal Plateau, rose the castle of the Carpathians. There had lived that strange personage, the frequenter of San Carlo, the man who had inspired such insurmountable terror in the unfortunate Lastella. But at present, the castle was deserted, and Baron de Gortz had not returned to it since he had fled from Naples. None knew what had become of him, and it was possible he had put an end to his existence after the death of the great artist. Franz wandered in this way across the field of supposition, knowing not where to stop. On the other hand, the adventure of the forester Nick Deck to a certain extent troubled him, and would have liked to have unraveled the mystery for only to reassure the people of Worst. Added to this, the young Count had no doubt that it was a band of thieves who had taken refuge in the castle, and he had resolved to keep his promise and put a stop to the maneuvers of those sham ghosts by giving information to the police at Carlsberg. But before taking steps in the matter, Franz resolved to have the most circumstantial details of the affair. For this object, the best thing to do was to apply to the young forester in person, and about three o'clock in the afternoon, before returning to the inn, he presented himself at the Bureau's house. 
Master Colts showed that he was honored to receive a gentleman like the Count de Telec, this descendant of a noble Romanian race, to whom the village of Worst would be indebted for the recovery of its peace and prosperity. For then, travelers would return to visit the country, and pay the customary tolls without having to fear the malevolent spirits of the castle of the Carpathians, etc., etc. Franz de Telec thanked Master Colts for his compliments, and asked to be allowed to see Nick Deck if there were no objection. None at all, Count, replied the Bureau. The gallant Nick is going on as well as possible, and will soon return to his work. And turning to his daughter, who had just entered the room, he said, Is that not true, Miriota? May heaven grant it so, my father, replied Miriota in an agitated voice. Franz was charmed by the girl's graceful greeting, and seeing she was still anxious regarding the state of her betrothed, he hastened to ask her for some explanation of the subject. From what I have heard, he said, Nick Deck has not been seriously hurt. No count, said Miriota, and heaven be praised for it. You have a physician at worst? Hum, said Master Colts in a tone that was not very flattering to the old quarantine man. We have Dr. Patak, replied Miriota. He who accompanied Nick Deck to the castle of the Carpathians? Yes. I should like to see your betrothed for his own sake, and obtain the most precise details of his adventure. He will be glad to give you them, even though it may fatigue him a little. Oh, I will not abuse the opportunity, and I will do nothing to injure Nick Deck. I know that. When is your marriage to take place? In a fortnight, said the Bureau. Then I shall have the pleasure of being present if Master Colts will give me an invitation. Such an honor, Count. In a fortnight, then. It is understood. And I'm sure that Nick Deck will be well again as soon as he can take a walk with his good-looking betrothed. God protect him, replied the girl as she blushed, and her charming face betrayed such apparent anxiety that Franz asked her the reason. Yes, may God protect him, replied Mariota, for in endeavoring to enter the castle in spite of the prohibition, Nick has defied the spirits, and who knows if they may not set themselves to injure him all his life. Oh, for that, replied Franz, we will have it all put straight, I promise you. Nothing will happen to my poor Nick? Nothing. And thanks to the police, you will be able to visit the castle in a few days and be quite as safe as in the streets of Worst. The young Count, thinking it inopportune to discuss the question of the supernatural, asked Miriota to show him the way to the forester's room. This the girl hastened to do, and then she left him alone with her betrothed. Nick Deck had been informed of the arrival of the two travelers at the King Matthias Inn. Seated in an old armchair as large as a sentry box, he rose to receive this visitor. As he now suffered but little from the paralysis with which he had been momentarily struck, he was sufficiently well to reply to the Count's questions. Nick Deck, said Franz, after a friendly shake of the hand, I would first ask you if you really believe in the presence of evil spirits at the castle of the Carpathians. I am compelled to believe it, replied Nick Deck. And it was they who kept you from getting over the castle wall? I have no doubt of it. And why, if you please? Because if they were not spirits, what happened to me would be inexplicable. Will you have the goodness to tell me without admitting anything what really did happen? Willingly. Nick Deck told his story item by item. He could only confirm the facts which Franz had heard in his conversation with the guests of the King Matthias. Facts on which, as we know, the young Count put a purely natural interpretation. In short, the occurrences of this night of adventure could be easily explained if human beings, criminal or otherwise, occupied the castle, and had the machinery capable of producing these phantasmal effects. As to Dr. Batak's peculiar assertion that he was chained to the ground by some force, it could only be supposed that he had been the sport of some illusion. 
What was most likely was that his limbs had failed him simply because he was mad with terror, and that Franz declared to the young forester. What, said Nick Deck, would it be at the moment he wanted to run that his legs would fail the coward? That is hardly likely, you must admit. Well, continued Franz, let us admit that his legs were caught in some trap, probably hidden under the grass at the bottom of the ditch. When a trap closes, said the forester, it hurts you cruelly, it tears your flesh, and Dr. Patak's legs have no trace of a wound. Your observation is correct, Nick Deck, but if it will be true that the doctor could not get away, it must be that his legs were caught in some snare. Then I will ask you how this snare would open itself and set the doctor at liberty. Franz was too much puzzled to reply. But, Count, I leave to you all that concerns Dr. Patak. After all, I can only speak of what I know of myself. Yes, let us leave the doctor and speak of what happened to you, Nick Deck. What happened to me was clear enough. There is no doubt I received a terrible shock, and that in a way that is unnatural. There is no appearance of a wound on your body, asked Franz. None, and yet I was struck with terrible violence. Was it just when you put your hand on the ironwork of the drawbridge? Yes, just as I touched it. I seemed as if it were paralyzed. Fortunately, my hand which held the chain did not leave go, and I slipped down to the bottom of the ditch where the doctor found me senseless. Franz shook his head with the air of a man whom these explanations left incredulous. You see, continued Nick Deck, what I have told you is no dream, and if for eight days I remained full length in the bed without the use of arms or legs, it is not reasonable to say I must have imagined it all. I do not attempt to do that, said the Count. It is only too certain you received a brutal shock. Brutal and diabolic. No, and in that we differ, Nick Deck. You believe you were struck by some supernatural being, and I do not believe there are supernatural beings, either good or evil. Will you then explain what happened to me? I cannot do that yet, Nick Deck, but rest assured all will be explained, in the most simple manner. May God grant it so. Tell me, said Franz, has this castle belonged all along to the Gortz family? Yes, and it belongs to it now, although the last descendant of the family, Baron Rudolph, disappeared, and no one had heard of him since. When did he disappear? About twenty years ago. Twenty years? Yes. One day Baron Rudolph left the castle, of which the last servant died a few months after his departure, and no one has seen him since. And since then no one has set foot in the castle? No one. And what is thought about him in the neighborhood? It is supposed that Baron Rudolph died abroad a short time after he disappeared. Then it is supposed wrong, Nick Deck. The Baron is still alive. At least he was so five years ago. He's alive? Yes, in Italy. At Naples. You have seen him? I have seen him. And during the five years? I've heard nothing about him. The young forester thought for a moment or so. An idea had occurred to him, an idea he hesitated to formulate. At length he made up his mind, and, raising his head and knitting his brow, he said, It is not supposable that Baron de Gortz has returned to the country with the intention of shutting himself up in the castle. No, it is not supposable, Nick Deck. What object would he have in hiding himself, in never letting anyone come near him? None, replied Franz de Telec. And yet this was the thought which had begun to take shape in the mind of the young Count. Was it not possible that this personage, whose existence had always been so enigmatic, had taken refuge in the castle after he left Naples? There, thanks to superstitious belief skillfully acted upon, would it not be easy for him to live in isolation, to defend himself against every unwelcome search, it being understood that he knew the state of mind that prevailed in the surrounding country. 
but yet Franz thought it useless to launch the Wurstians on this hypothesis. It would have been necessary to have put them in possession of facts which were too personal to him. Besides, he would have convinced nobody, and that he saw clearly enough when Nick Deck added, If it is Baron Rodolph who is in the castle, we shall have to believe that Baron Rodolph is the Chort, for only the Chort could have treated me in this way. Desirous of not returning over the same ground, Franz changed the course of the conversation. After employing every means to reassure the young forester as to the consequence of his attempt, he made his promise not to renew it. That was not his affair, it was the business of the authorities, and the Carlsberg police would know how to discover the mystery of the castle of the Carpathians. The young count then took leave of Nick Deck, recommending him to get well as quickly as possible, so as not to delay his marriage with the fair Miriota, at which he promised to be present. Absorbed in his reflections, Franz returned to the King Matthias, and did not go out again that day. At six o'clock, Jonas served his dinner in the large room, when by a praiseworthy feeling of reserve, neither Master Colts nor any of the villagers came to trouble his solitude. About eight o'clock, Rotsko said to the young Count, You have no further need of me, Master? No, Rotsko. Then I will go and smoke my pipe on the terrace. Go, Rotsko, go. Lounging in an armchair, Franz again began to think of all that had passed. He was at Naples during the last performance at the San Carlo Theatre. He saw the Baron de Gortz at the moment when, for the first time, this man appeared to him, his head out of the box, his look ardently fixed on the artiste as if he would fascinate her. Then his thoughts recurred to the letter signed by the strange personage, which accused him, Franz Etelec, of having killed Lestilla. Lost in his recollections, Franz felt sleep come over him little by little, but it was still in that transition state when one could perceive the least noise when a surprising phenomenon took place. It seemed that a voice, sweet and modulated, made itself heard in the room, where Franz was alone, quite alone. Without knowing whether he dreamt or not, Franz rose and listened. Yes, it seemed as though a mouth came close to his ear, and invisible lips gave forth the expressive melody of Stefano, inspired by these words. Nel giardino de mille fiori, andiamo mio cuore. This romance Franz knew. This romance of ineffable sweetness Lestilla had sung in the concert she had given at the San Carlo Theater before her farewell performance. Unconsciously, Franz abandoned himself to the charm of hearing it once again. Then the phrase ended, and the voice, gradually growing fainter, died away with the last vibrations of the air. But Franz roused himself from his torpor. He straightened himself up abruptly. He held his breath to see some distant echo of his voice which went to his heart. All was silent within and without. Her voice, he murmured. Yes, it was really her voice. The voice I love so much. Then, returning to himself, he said, I was asleep, and I dreamed. End of chapter 10 Chapter 8 Such things were not calculated to calm the terrors of the people of Worst. There could now be no doubt that the threats uttered by the mouth of darkness, as the poet said in the King Matthias, were to be taken seriously. Nick Deck, struck in this inexplicable manner, had been punished for his disobedience and temerity. Was not this a warning to all those who might be tempted to follow his example? Here, clearly enough, was a formal prohibition against entering the castle of the Carpathians. Whoever tried it would risk his life. Most certainly if the forester had got within the wall, he would never have returned to the village. And so the fright was more complete than ever at worst, and even in Vulcan, and also throughout the valley of the two sills. Nothing less was spoken of than leaving the district, 
and a few gypsy families moved off rather than live in the vicinity of the castle. That it should be a refuge for supernatural and maleficent beings was more than the popular feeling could put up with. The only thing to do was to go into some other part of the country, unless the Hungarian government decided to destroy this inaccessible haunt. But was the castle of the Carpathians destructible by the only means man had at his disposal? During the first week of June, no one would venture out of the village, not even to work in the fields. Might not the least stroke of a spade provoke the apparition of some phantom buried in the ground? The coulter of the plow as it cut the furrow, might it not set in flight a flock of staffi or striges? Where the seed of corn was sown, might not the seed of demons spring up? That could not fail to happen, said the shepherd Frick in a tone of conviction. And, as far as he was concerned, he took good care not to return with his sheep to the pastures of the sill. And so, the village was in a state of terror. No one went to work in the fields. Everyone remained at home with doors and windows closed. Master Colts did not know what to do to restore confidence among those under his rule. Evidently, the only way was to go to Kulsevar and invoke the intervention of the authorities. And had the smoke reappeared at the top of the dungeon chimney? Yes, many times the telescope had made it visible among the mists which swept the Orgal Plateau. And when night came, had the clouds assumed a rosy hue as if from the reflection of a fire? Yes, and it was said that fiery plumes could be seen curling and whirling over the castle. And that roaring which had frightened Dr. Patak, was it heard from among the woods of Plesa to the terror of the people of Worst? Yes, or at least, notwithstanding the distance, the northwest wind brought along fearful growlings which were augmented by the echoes of the hills. According to some of the more terror-stricken, the ground was shaken by subterranean tremblings, as if some ancient volcano had become active again in the Carpathian chain, but possibly there was a good deal of exaggeration in what the Worstians thought they saw and heard and felt. Under any circumstances there were positive, tangible reasons, it will be admitted, why living in such a strangely troubled country was no longer possible. The King Matthias remained deserted in consequence. A lazaretto in an epidemic could not have been more shunned. No one had the audacity to cross the threshold, and Jonas was asking himself if, for want of customers, he would not have to retire from trade, when the arrival of two travelers altered matters considerably. In the evening of the month of June, about eight o'clock, the latch of the door was lifted from the outside, but the door, being bolted inside, could not be opened. Jonas, who had already retired to his attic, hastily came down. To the hope of finding himself face to face with a customer was added the fear that the customer might be some evil-looking ghost, to whom he would be only too ready to refuse board and lodging. Jonas proceeded to hold the parlay through the door without opening it. Who was there? he asked. Two travelers. Alive? Very much alive. Are you sure of it? As much alive as we can be, Mr. Innkeeper, but we shall die of hunger if you keep us outside. Jonas decided to draw back the bolts, and two men entered the room. As soon as they were in, their first demand was for a room each, as they intended to stay a day at worst. By the light of the lamp, Jonas examined the newcomers with great attention, and made sure that he had really to deal with human beings. How fortunate for the King Matthias. The younger of the travelers might be about 32 years old, of tall stature, with a noble handsome face, black eyes, dark brown hair, a well-cut brown beard, a somewhat sad but proud look upon him. In fact, he was a gentleman, and an experienced innkeeper like Jonas could not be mistaken in such a matter. Besides, when he asked what names he was to enter into the visitor's book, the younger man replied, The Count Franz de Telec and his man Rotsko. Of what place? Krajowa. Krajowa was one of the chief towns of the state of Romania, which borders the Transylvanian provinces south of the Carpathian chain. Franz de Telec was thus of Romanian nationality, as Jonas had seen from the very first. Rotsko was a man of about forty, solidly built and strong, with a thick mustache, bristled hair, and quite a military bearing. He carried a soldier's knapsack strapped to his shoulders, 
and a valise small enough to be carried in his hands. That was all the baggage of the young Count, who traveled generally on foot as could be seen from his costume. A cloak and a roll over his shoulder, a light cap on his head, a short jacket with a belt, from which hung the leather sheath of a Wallachian knife, and he wore the gaiters strapped down to the broad, thick-soled shoes. These travelers were the two whom the shepherd Fricken met twelve days before on the road to the hills, when they were going to Retyazan. After seeing the country up to Moros, and making the ascent of the mountain, they had come for a little rest to worst before exploring the valley of the two sills. You have two rooms we can have? asked Franz de Telec. Two, three, four, as many as the Count pleases, said Jonas. Two will do, said Rotzko, but they must be near each other. Will these suit you? asked Jonas, opening two doors at the end of the large saloon. Very well indeed, said Franz de Telec. Evidently, Jonas had nothing to fear from his new customers. These were no supernatural beings, no phantoms who had assumed the shape of men. No, this gentleman was one of those personages of distinction whom the innkeeper is always honored and welcoming, and who might perhaps bring the King Matthias into fashion again. How far are we from Kosovar? asked the Count. About fifty miles if you go by road through the Petrosny and Carlsberg, replied Jonas. Is it a tiring sort of walk? Yes, very tiring for walkers. And if I may be permitted to say so, the Count would seem to require a rest of a few days before undertaking it. Can we have something to eat? asked Franz de Telec, cutting short the innkeeper's remarks. In half an hour's time I shall have the honor of offering the Count a repast worthy of him. Bread, wine, eggs, and cold meat will be enough for tonight. I will go and see about them, as soon as possible. This moment, and Jonas was hurrying off to the kitchen when a question stopped him. You do not seem to have many people at your inn, said Franz de Telec. No, not just at the moment, sir. Is this not the time for people to come and have a drink and smoke a pipe? It is too late now, sir. They go to bed with the chickens in the village of Worst. Never would he have said why the King Matthias was without a customer. Are there not three or four hundred people in this village? About that, sir. Why did we not meet a living soul as we came down the main street? That is because today, well, it is Saturday, you see, and the day before Sunday is... Franz de Telec did not persist, luckily for Jonas, who did not know what to reply. Nothing in the world would have induced him to reveal the true state of affairs. Strangers would learn that only too soon, and who could tell if they would not hasten to leave a village so deservedly suspected? It is to be hoped that that voice will not begin to chatter in the big room while they are at supper, thought Jonas as he laid the table. A few minutes afterwards, the very simple meal ordered by the young Count was neatly served on a clean white cloth. Franz de Telec sat down, and Rotzko seated himself facing him, as they usually did on the travels. Both of them ate with a good appetite, and when the repast was over, they retired to their rooms. As the young Count and Rotzko had hardly spoken ten words during their meal, Jonas had not been able to take part in their conversation, to his great displeasure. Besides, Franz de Telec did not seem to be communicative. As to Rotzko, the innkeeper, after due survey, gathered that he would not be able to get anything out of him regarding his master's family. Jonas had, therefore, to content himself with bidding his visitors good night. Before he went up to his attic, he gave a good look round the room and lent an anxious ear to the least noises within and without, saying to himself, May that abominable voice not awake them from their sleep. The night passed tranquilly. At daybreak the next morning, the news began to spread in the village that two travelers had arrived at the King Matthias, and a number of people gathered in front of the inn. Franz de Telec and Rotzko were still sleeping, tired after their excursion the day before. There was little likelihood of their rising before seven or eight o'clock, and consequently there was great impatience among the spectators, who had none of them the courage to enter the room before the travelers. At eight o'clock they came in together. Nothing regrettable had happened. They could be seen walking about in the inn, then they sat down for breakfast, all of which was particularly reassuring. Jonas stood at the front door and smiled amiably, inviting his old customers to give him another trial. 
The traveler who honored the king Matthias with his presence was a gentleman, a Romanian gentleman, if you please, and of one of the oldest Romanian families. What was to be feared in such noble company? In short, it happened that Master Colts, thinking it his duty to set an example, took the risk of the first step. About nine o'clock the bureau entered the room in a rather hesitating way. Almost immediately he was followed by McGeester Hermit and three or four other customers, as well as the shepherd Frick. As to Dr. Patak, it had been impossible to persuade him to accompany them. Set foot in Jonas's, he said, never until he pays me two florins a visit. We may here remark, as it is a matter of some importance, that if Master Colts had consented to return to the King Matthias, it was not solely with a view of satisfying his curiosity, nor with the intention of making the acquaintance of Count Franz de Tlec. No, self-interest was his chief motive. As a traveler, the young Count had become liable for attacks on self and men, and it must not be forgotten that these taxes went directly into the pocket of the chief magistrate of Worst. The bureau at once went forward and politely stated his demand, and Franz de Tlec, although taken somewhat by surprise, immediately settled the claim. He even begged the bureau and the schoolmaster to be seated for a moment at his table, and the offer was so politely made that they could not refuse. Jonas hastened to serve them with his drinks, the best he had in the cellar, and then the few of the natives of Worst asked for a drink of their own account, and it seemed as though the old customers, for a moment dispersed, would soon be as plentiful as ever in the King Matthias. Having paid the traveler's tax, Franz de Telec wished to know if it were productive. Not as much as we wish, replied Master Colts. Do strangers only come here occasionally, then? Very occasionally, said the Bureau, and yet the country is worth a visit. So I think, said the Count. What I have seen appeared to me to be well worth a traveler's attention. From the top of the Retigzat I much admired the valley of the Sills, the villages away to the east, and the range of mountains which closes in the view. It is very fine, sir, very fine, said McGeester Hermit, and to complete your tour you should make the ascent of pairing. I am afraid I shall not have the necessary time, said the Count. One day would be enough. Probably, but I am going to Carlsberg, and I must start tomorrow morning. What, said Jonas, with his most amiable air, does the Count think of leaving us so soon? And he would not have been sorry if the visitors could have stayed some time at the King Matthias. It must be so, said the Count de Telec. Besides, what would be the use of making a longer stay at worst? Believe me, our village is well worth a tourist making some stay at, said Master Colts. But it does not seem so much frequented, said the Count, and that is probably because its neighborhood has nothing remarkable about it. Quite so, nothing remarkable, said the Bureau, thinking of the castle. No, nothing remarkable, said the schoolmaster. Oh, ah, said the shepherd Frick, the exclamation escaping involuntarily. What looks he received from Master Colts and the others, particularly from the innkeeper? Was it then advisable to let the stranger into the secrets of the district? Should they reveal to him what had passed on the plateau of Orgal, and direct his attention to the castle of the Carpathians? Would that not frighten him and make him anxious to leave the village? And in the future, what traveler would come by the Vulcan road into Transylvania? Truly the shepherd had shown no more intelligence than if he were one of his own sheep. Be quiet, you imbecile, be quiet, said Master Colts to him in a whisper. But as the young Count's curiosity had been awakened, he addressed himself directly to Frick, and asked him what he meant by this, oh, ah. The shepherd was not a man to retreat, and perhaps would have thought that Franz de Telec might give some advice which the village might profitably adopt. I said, oh, ah, replied the shepherd, and I will not go back on my word. Is there any marvel, then, to visit in the neighborhood of Verst? Any marvel, replied Master Colts. No, no, exclaimed the bystanders and they were already in fear at the thought lest a fresh attempt at entering the castle would bring fresh misfortunes on them. Franz de Telec, not without some surprise, took notice of those people whose faces were expressive of alarm in all sorts of ways, but all equally unmistakable. What is this all about? he asked. What is it, sir? replied Watsko. Well, it seems there is the castle of the Carpathians. The castle of the Carpathians? Yes, that is the name the shepherd just whispered in my ear. And as he spoke, Watsko pointed to Frick, who nodded his head without daring to look at his master. 
but a breach was now made in the wall of the private life of the superstitious village, and all its history could not help going forth through the breach. In fact, Master Colts, who made up his mind how to act, resolved to explain matters himself to the Count, and told him all he knew about the castle of the Carpathians. Naturally, Franz de Tillet could not hide the astonishment the story caused him, nor the feelings it suggested to him. Although he knew little of scientific matters, like other young people of his class who lived in their castles in the Wallachian byways, he was a sensible man. He believed but little in apparitions and laughed at legend. A castle haunted by spirits merely excited his incredulity. In his opinion, in all that Master Colts had told him there was nothing of the marvelous, but only a few facts, more or less proved, to which the people of Worst attributed a supernatural origin. The smoke from the dungeon, the bell ringing violently, could be very easily explained, and the lightnings and roarings from within the walls might be purely imaginary. Franz de Telec did not hesitate to say so, and to joke about it to the great scandal of the listeners. But, Count, there is something else, said Master Colts. What is that? Well, it is impossible to get into this castle of the Carpathians. Indeed? Our forester and our doctor tried to get in a few days ago, for the benefit of the village, and they paid dearly for their attempt. What happened to them? asked Franz de Telec, somewhat ironically. Master Colts related in detail the adventures of Nick Deck and Dr. Patak. And so, said the Count, when the doctor wanted to get out of the ditch, his feet were so stuck to the ground that he could not take a step forward? Neither a step forward nor a step behind, added Magister Hermit. Your doctor thought so, replied Franz de Telec, but it was fear which struck him by the heels. Be it so, replied Master Colts, but Nick Deck received a frightful shock when he put his hand on the ironwork of the drawbridge. A terrible shock. So terrible, replied the Bureau, that he has been in bed ever since. Not in danger of his life, I hope, said the Count. No, fortunately. That was a fact, an undeniable fact, and Master Colts waited for the explanation Franz de Telec would give. In all I have just heard there is nothing, I repeat, but what is very simple. I have no doubt but what somebody is now living in the castle. Who? I know not. Anyhow, they are not spirits, but people who wish to lie hidden there after taking refuge there. Criminals, probably. Criminals, exclaimed Master Colts. Probably, and as they do not want anyone to hunt them out, they wished it to be believed that the castle is haunted by supernatural beings. What? said Magister Hermit. You think... I think you are very superstitious in these parts, that the people in the castle know it, and that they wish to keep off visitors in that way. That this was the true explanation was not unlikely, but we need not be astonished if anyone at worst would admit it. The young Count saw that he had in no way convinced an audience who did not wish to be convinced, and so he contented himself with adding, If you do not care to agree with me, gentlemen, you can continue to think what you please about the castle of the Carpathians. We believe what we have seen, replied Master Colts. And what is... said the Magister. Well, really, I am sorry I have not a day to spare, for Rotsko and I would have paid a visit to your famous castle, and I assure you we would have soon found out. Visit the castle, exclaimed Master Colts, without hesitation, and the devil himself would not have stopped us getting in. On listening to Franz de Telec express himself so positively, so ironically even, the villagers were seized with terror. In treating the spirits of the castle with such indifference, would he not bring some disaster on the village? Did not these spirits hear all that passed in the inn of the King Matthias? Would the voice be heard a second time in this room? Thereupon, Master Colts told the young Count of the circumstance under which the forester had been personally threatened when he decided on entering the castle of the Carpathians. Franz de Telec simply shrugged his shoulders. Then he rose, saying that no voice had ever been heard in the room as they pretended. Whereupon, some of the company made for the door, not caring to remain any longer in a place where a young skeptic dared say such things. But Franz de Telec stopped them with a gesture. Assuredly, gentlemen, he said, I see that the village of Worst is under the empire of fear. And not without reason, replied Master Colts. Well, there's a very simple way of putting a stop to the performances which, according to you, are going on in the castle of the Carpathians. After tomorrow, I shall be at Carlsberg, 
and if you like I will tell the town authorities. They will send you a few police, and I will answer for it that these brave fellows will know how to get into the castle and clear out the jokers who are practicing on your credulity, or arrest the scoundrels who are perhaps preparing for some new iniquity. Nothing could be more acceptable than this proposal, but yet it was not to the taste of the notables of first. In their opinion, neither the police nor the army itself would succeed against these superhuman beings who would know how to defend themselves by supernatural means. But I believe, continued the young count, that you have not yet told me to whom this castle of the Carpathians belongs or belonged. To an old country family, the family of the barons of Gortz, said Master Gortz. The family of Gortz, exclaimed Franz de Telec. The same. Is that the family to which Baron Rodolphe belonged? Yes. And do you know what has become of him? No, for the Baron has not come back to the castle for years. Franz de Telec had become quite pale, and mechanically, in an altered voice, he repeated the name. Rodolphe de Gortz End of chapter 8